book of 2 Timothy. In the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I think my battery just died. Can you, can you get me a new one? Give me a new battery for me, please. The Bible says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And it says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. We are glad to be here with you guys. Um, welcome, everyone. Sorry, we got some, my, my ba- mic battery just died as I turned it on. Uh, our mission at the brook is, is that the brook exists to lead the thirsty to the water of life. And we just want this to be a place where all of us are renewed in our faith and find nourishment. Uh, you ever come here on a Sunday morning feeling tapped, exhausted? You ever been in a place where you feel just completely out of energy? Um, and that's true of us oftentimes physically, but sometimes it's true of us spiritually. And we want to this be a place where all of us find strength and nourishment in Jesus Christ primarily. So let's get our mic here changed out so my hands are free because you guys know I like using my hands when I talk. There we go. Let me pray as we get started and open up God's word here together. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this morning. I'm so glad, God, to be here and to be with my brothers and sisters and for all those who are visiting with us today here exploring the Christian faith, trying to find out, God, um, what Jesus is all about, what Christianity is all about. So, Lord, I pray that you would meet us here, that your spirit would be at work in all of us. Father, I pray that, um, that you would give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see whatever you want us to hear and see, Lord. And we mean that, God, from the bottom of our hearts, Lord. Um, God, I, I do ask, God, that, uh, that not one of us would leave today without feeling challenged by you in some form, Lord. And even as we close our service with a time of prayer and singing as we do every week, God, I pray that uh, as men and women, as young people feel spurred on to, to seek prayer from others, that, that even now, Lord, you begin to prepare their hearts for that, Father. Lord, we thank you, God, and we pray that you would do a mighty work among us. For Jesus' sake, amen. amen. Well, at the Brook, we've been going through a message series from the book of 2 Timothy. And um, I love this book of the Bible. It really cuts straight to the heart. And um, actually, before I even say that, uh, how sweet was singing that last song to church family? You know, it's pretty cool. Many of you guys don't know, that song was written by two of our worship leaders at the Brook, and it's only been sung here at the Brook. Um, they have moved on. They're not here at the Brook anymore. They moved out of state. But I just, I just love seeing when people use their God-given gifts to bless the church. Um, I, I was joking in backstage with our worship team, like that song needs to get out so other churches would be blessed like we were just blessed by it. And some of you guys need to be writing songs. Some of you guys need to be writing books. Some of you guys need to be putting a blog post out there. God has given you gifts and voices, and we just want to see God use those biblically rooted voices and gifts to do things for his glory. Don't be shy about it. Don't sit on your talent. Jesus says to whom much is, uh, much is given, much will be accept, expected. But those who are given little and are not faithful with it, he'll take it away. So God's given all of us something. Be faithful with it. All right, that's before the sermon. 
But we'll come back around to that, though. In 2 Timothy, in similar fashion, Paul, the writer of this letter to his young man named Timothy, this, this man that he's discipled, Paul's eyeing down the finish line of his life. He's ready to die. He realizes that there's a death sentence on his head, and he's not coming out. So he takes the opportunity to write a letter to Timothy, say, hey, Timothy, I want to drop some knowledge on you for the last time. I want you to be firm in your faith. And basically he says, I've entrusted to you this message of Jesus that God wants you to guard, and he wants you to pass it on to other faithful men and women who then will also be faithful and pass it on to others, and there will be this chain reaction, this disciple cycles that take place so that this good news of Jesus never dies out. And then in God's mercy, he's preserved this message in this Bible for us. And so what Paul is telling Timothy is guard the truth, and by application, he's telling you and me, guard the truth. Know the word. Share the gospel. Wear the gospel. Give the gospel. Live the gospel. Let it be evident on you and through you that Jesus is alive and changes lives. That's what Paul is telling Timothy to do. And he says, everything you do then, you are presenting to God in your life. Whatever you do, you are presenting it to God. God is always there. There's a Latin phrase, corum Deo. You always live before the face of God. He is always watching. And Paul is telling Timothy, so guard the truth and live for Jesus. Family, we live in a day where the truth of the Bible is highly challenged. It is viewed as a, a book among many, as a message that can be compromised as a message that can be twisted, as a message where we can keep some and leave some. And that's the way the Bible is viewed. I'm going to illustrate this for you. This past week, I was at Bell Park. After a baseball game, there was a man sitting on the bench. I've never seen him before. Uh, He was not connected with anybody at the league. But uh, he was watching our kids play some baseball after the game. And that caused an opportunity for us to strike a conversation And pretty quickly in the conversation, I realized God had put him there for me. Um, And and those are those moments where you're like, oh, Lord, help me be faithful here. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Uh, I found out in the conversation, he's like, had a fight with the wife, came outside for uh, some fresh air and a six-pack of beer. And I was like, all right, you you got real problems that many of us deal with, right? Arguments, life challenges, struggle. And sometimes we just need a, a, a breath of fresh air. We've all been there. We've all done that, right? Okay. He's got a real struggle, a real problem. And as we got talking, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm going right straight, for, straight forward. Like, hey, man, I'm the pastor of the church right there. We'd love to have you. Jesus is the answer for our lives. Kind of gave him some, some quick gospel, big picture um, statement. And right away, it struck a chord in his nerve. Because he's like, oh, that's good for you. That's not what I believe. I'm like, that's cool. All right. Well, talk, let's talk about this. And he began to share something to the effect of, um, I believe that whatever I think is, is, you know, basically I'm my final authority. Um, what you believe is good for you. What I believe is good for me. You can't judge me uh, because that's what I'm doing. And so I'm looking. I'm listening. I'm just saying, all right, Lord, what am I supposed to do here? The guy was talking quite a bit. But he's talking about ultimately his, his basic thing is, You make your own truth, I make my own truth. You believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, and you have no basis for judging whether or not I'm right or wrong. And then he asked me, so what do you think about that? And I told him, I think you're wrong. 
And so I, I said humbly, of course, um, I said, I think you're wrong. I said, because if we are the basis for truth, then whatever you say is right for you is right. But I asked them, but is it right for me to walk across into that house over there with a gun and shoot everybody inside of there? And he said, well, then he's like, for me, that's not right to do. I'm like, I'm not asking you for, for you. I'm asking you, is it right for me to do that? And then he got a little upset. He's like, oh, you're just trying to get me twisted up here. I was like, no, what I'm saying is this. If we are the basis for our own truth, then there is no basis for truth. We cannot determine what's right or wrong. And basically what I wanted him to understand was we are right to judge. It's not wrong to judge. The Bible says judge not or else you'll be judged. For the measure you judge, you will be measured. What Jesus is saying is don't judge in improper measurements, but judge in a way that you yourself expect to be judged. Which basically Jesus is saying is be consistent. I told the man, I have every right to get a ticket if I'm driving 40 on a 30. Why? Because the police officer has the right to judge my actions as wrong. And the truth of it is then that God is a judge, and we don't get to determine what's right or wrong. He has determined it, and he is good, and he is just, and therefore he judges. Yeah. How do we know this? It's in the truth. See, if we don't know the word of God, there is no basis for truth. But hear this, hear this. The beautiful thing is God has given us his word. And as I read this past week, one writer says, God has spoken and God still speaks through what he has spoken. Let me, let me say that again because I don't think y'all caught this. God has spoken and still speaks through what he has spoken. God speaks through, has spoken through the Bible, and he still speaks through the Bible. Or as another person said, the Bible is God preaching. You want to hear good preaching? Open the word and listen to God. So here we are, standing with a Bible in our hands. And Paul here is telling Timothy, know this word Live by this word. It is a faithful foundation upon which you can build your life. Because in it are the very words of God, the message of Jesus, the hope of eternity. So family, I pray that at the end of this message, you will be spurred on to know this word better. That you wouldn't feel more guilted into reading your Bible, but as I say often, that you'd be inspired into reading your Bible. That you would be moved to be women and men of the word, young people who are striving to get in this text. As D.L. Moody once said, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. We want to be people who know this book because it's not just a book. It is God's word to us. And so we come to 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 14 through 19. And in this passage, we see that Paul is telling Timothy to know this word and live by this word. Because either we will rightly handle this word or we're going to swerve away from it. Those are the two options that Timothy is given here by Paul. And that's what God wants us to hear. We're going to live by this or we're going to swerve away from it. Where are you at today? Well, if you can, would you rise to your feet with me? As I read 2 Timothy 
chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. There is a Bible in the chair in front of you. We'd love for you to use that Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that Bible. It is God preaching, and we want you to have his sermon. This is what God's word says. Paul writes to Timothy, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best. Can you say, do your best? Can you say it again? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who has swerved, swerved, they've swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands Bearing this seal, the Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is God's word for us, church family. You may be seated. What Paul wants Timothy to be is a worker who is not ashamed of the way he knows the word of God. And that's what he wants for us, family. We want to be men and women who know what God has to say to us. I mentioned to you these two options, either rightly handle it or swerve from the truth. I want to unpack the second one there, to swerve from the truth. Because Paul gives a number of descriptions of people who are not faithful to the Bible and what happens when that's the case. Look at verse 14. He says, remind them of these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. You see, when we are not men and women rooted in the Bible, we find ourselves quarreling more. Quarreling about words. Quarreling about all kinds of things, which result in a ruined hearer. The word quarrel has the idea of the war of words. I mean, war of words. It's a, it's a, it's a fighting. It's combative with our tongue. And Paul's like, man, that's, that's not healthy to be fighting over the words. Now notice here, Paul's not downplaying the importance of words. We, we believe words are important. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself coined a bunch of phrases and words himself to try to convey truth. But what happens is when we take words and we fight over them and we twist them, We're walking in a dangerous place, especially the words of Scripture. I believe now more than ever in our day and age, the world is watching what the church does and says. More than ever, because of the accessibility of media and and video and and, uh, social media. I I, I get on Twitter, and so often I'm looking at the arguments, the, the war of words the quarreling that so many Christians are having over sometimes theological topics and other things like that. No doubt things that are important, but there's a way to have a civil discussion and there's a way to be dishonoring in our wording. 
Our day and age lacks civility in discussion. It happens in the political world. It happens on, on Facebook. And it happens on Twitter. And it happens so often in the church. Where even something as beautiful as the word of God, people can take and become, uh, become quarrelsome about it. And what Paul says, what happens is those who are hearing, maybe not even those who are participating in it, but those who are watching become ruined. The Greek word for ruin here is catastrophe. Catastrophe. It's, it is catastrophic what happens when we are not men and women who are rooted in the truth of the word and the grace of God's word. He goes on to say in verse 16, he says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness. So quarreling leads to ruin, as irreverent babble leads to ungodliness. Irreverent babble. When something's irreverent, it takes God out of the equation. It dishonors God. It lacks the seasoning of God's word, the seasoning of the truth upon what is being said. And irreverent babble ultimately produces the fruit of ungodliness. Ungodliness is life apart from God. It's, it's choosing to live apart from what God commands us. And we're seeing the correlation here. Paul is saying this, when we don't live according to God's word, it brings ruin and ungodliness. Family, I think it's so important that all of us, all of us are intentional about letting the truth of God season our lips. You know, grill season is upon us. And you know when someone's grilling without adobo, right? When they give you chicken without the right seasoning, it's bland. It just doesn't have the right taste to it. That's what the church is in our society without the good news of Jesus on our lips. It is bland. It's of little value. And Paul's like, man, what's going to do is produce ungodliness. It's going to cause people to turn away from the church. Now, no doubt, the church is a beautiful thing. And we did a whole message series about this last fall talking about the beauties of the church. I love the church. The church is not a building. You are not at church right now, family. You are with the church. You are the church. We are the church. It is the body of Christ. Yeah. And so often the church, Christianity, is judged in a way that we shouldn't be. We are not claiming perfection. We're claiming being redeemed by Jesus. But because of that, though, we got to live that way, fam. And so Paul is saying, man, the the world is watching. And when they see the irreverent babble that comes out of mouths of many, it leads into ungodliness. And he says that that talk will spread like gangrene, which is a flesh-eating kind of disease that eats away your flesh and bones. It doesn't stop. It spreads. So just as quarrel leads to ruin, irreverent babble leads to ungodliness, and it spreads. And look what he says here in verse 17. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. And you're like, man, did Paul just put someone on blast publicly here? The answer is yes. He called out false teachers by name. Now that seems pretty radical, doesn't it? It's like, man, is that, is that gossip? What's wrong with that? So let's remember here. He told Timothy, and God's telling you and I, we've been entrusted with the truth. We are responsible to guard the truth. And when people in the name of Jesus preach a message contrary to the truth, 
We need to make it clear to all those who are walking with Jesus that this person does not teach truth. Now, false teachers is different than someone who misspeaks. Sometimes we misspeak. Someone said, hey, I didn't agree with everything you said. And the guy's like, I don't agree with everything I say. You know, even as a preacher, to stand up here every week for 40 minutes and talk, sometimes I'm wondering, like, did I say that right or wrong? Someone will say, hey, you said this name, you meant that one. It's like, I don't even realize sometimes. That happens. But a false teacher is someone who, when corrected, says, no, I believe this other thing. Or when corrected, might apologize in private but never correct it in public. Because what happens is people like these are trying to often make a name for themselves and are peddling God's word for selfish ambition. And what Paul is like, hey, these two people, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they're dangerous. They they will cause you to what he says in verse 18, swerve from the truth. Swerve from the truth. Like I've told you guys in the weeks previously, and I just want you to hear this. Just because something goes viral from someone who is said to be a preacher doesn't mean they're speaking truth. It may sound good, but anybody can sound good for a two-minute sound bite. Let's make sure we're hearing what the message is and being careful to say, are they teaching the truth? Is this Jesus-centered? Is this God-glorifying? Or is this man-uplifting? There's a stark contrast there. And so what we need to be are people who are careful to not allow in teaching in our lives or in the lives of our brother and sister that will cause us to swerve from the truth. What's the result of this kind of thing, he says? Well, actually, he says uh, in verse 18, they swerve from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. So Hymenaeus and Philetus in particular are talking about a false teaching saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now let's clarify what they mean by this. Of course, the resurrection of Jesus has happened. There's no doubt about that. But the resurrection of Jesus, the Bible said, is the first fruits. It's the, the first of many other resurrections to come. And what are those other resurrections? Well, praise God, it's yours and mine and all those who follow Jesus throughout history. See, the grave does not have the victory over us because of Jesus. And what Paul wants to make clear in all his teaching, as God makes clear in all the scriptures, is that after our death, if we believed in Jesus, there will come a day where our bodies will be resurrected and it will meet with our soul and we will live with God for eternity in heaven. These two teachers were saying that already happened. So if you hear someone saying that already happened, you start to think, then what's left for me? Man, like the resurrection is taking place. So after I die, is it annihilation? Is it, is it non-existence? Well, what do I make of life if there is no resurrection? Well, if Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, well, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. See, it's a false teaching that affects our living. And Paul's like, hey, don't listen to these people. They're wrong. Jesus has raised, but you too will be raised in the last day. And what he says is the result of this is that it's upsetting the faith of some. Now, I really appreciate him saying it's upsetting the faith of some, which means it's not upsetting the faith of all. See, some people were persuaded by their false teaching and others were not persuaded by it. Family, you and I will be persuaded one way or another towards the truth or toward error. 
some, their faith was upset by this. And my understanding then is because they did not stand on a firm foundation. They didn't know this word like they ought to have, so they were easily led astray. For example, a couple years ago, I was in Liberia, West Africa, a beautiful country, beautiful people, and I was staying at Pastor Nathaniel Wilson's house, who's come to the brook a few times, even preached here with us. And the first night I was there, I was staying at his house, and um, let me just tell you, Liberia is is a very under-resourced nation. Um, There was not uh, running water. There's not running water in most most of the homes. There's not electricity unless it's run by generators. And so in the middle of the night, pitch black, uh, there's no light, there's nothing, uh, there was a wicked storm. I mean, it was like one of those storms that you're like, this is the perfect storm. And I'm laying in my bed, and I'm starting to get a little nervous, because like, it felt like the house was shaking, it felt like I heard things flying outside, and I'm starting to think, man, I, Liberia's on the coast of Africa, do they get hurricanes? So I'm starting to wonder, does Africa get hurricanes? I still don't know the answer to that. But at that moment at 2 in the morning, I was like, they must, because this is one of them. So I'm starting to panic. I'm like, I'm going to die in Africa today. I get up out of my bed, and I have my Chicago Public School training. I get to the doorframe for the tornado drills, right? I'm standing like this in the doorframe, and a storm is coming. I'm like, it's just a bad storm. My, my mind was, was messed up with me, all right? Eventually, I got back into bed and fell asleep for, I don't know, a couple hours. Next morning, I wake up. And everyone's just going about their day. And I'm like, crazy storm this past night, huh? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I mean, it was like really bad, wasn't it? Like, yeah, that was bad. And I'm, I'm like looking around, and nothing changed for them. They did that morning what they had done the previous morning and the previous 3,000 mornings. Because to them, that storm was of no, no danger. Why? Because they've gone through it before. They've seen those storms before, and it didn't shake them. Me, who's unseasoned, had never gone through a storm like that, and it shook me to the core. Family, I don't know if you hear what I'm saying here. When we are seasoned in God's word, and when we're firm on his foundation, no matter what comes against you, you're not shaken. Your faith is not upset. You know the truth. And so we don't know the truth, that we get all shaky and nervous And we just got to come back to the foundation. The faith of some was upset because they did not know the truth as well as they ought. See, when we don't get in God's word and know it, it can lead to quarreling, which produces ruin. It can lead to irreverent babble, which produces ungodliness. And it can lead to swerving from the truth, which produces the upsetting of your faith. That's what happens when we're not responsible with God's word. But I skipped over verse 15 on purpose because I want to come back to it to give you the opposite of that. Paul tells Timothy, on the other hand, this is what you ought to do. Do your best. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, he's talking about our effort here. Do your best. You know when you're not giving your best to something. As Erica was talking about, baseball provides so many life lessons. I know when my players that I'm coaching are not giving their best. 
by the way, I'll never do a mound visit like, a, like a, the same ever again after her call to worship. And if you missed her call to worship, too bad. It was good. But, but listen, you can tell when someone's not giving their best. And you yourself know when you are not giving your best. And Paul's like, look, man, do your best. Don't, don't give God your leftovers. Give him your first fruits, first fruit of your energies, first fruit of your finances, first fruit of your time, first fruit of all you are. Give God your best, family. Don't say at the end of the day, all right, oh, that's right, God, I'm following you, right? No, God's like, start with me. Paul's like, do your best. That's true for all of life. When you work, work for God's sake. If you're a student, study for God's sake. If you're a politician, legislate for God's sake. If you're a first responder, educator, lawyer, whatever you do for your life, do it for God's sake. In particular, though, Paul's saying, do this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Be one who is approved for God's sake. This word approved carries the idea of battle-tested. Battle-tested. Like, you know, when you go out on the playground to play basketball, and there's a new kid who shows up, you're not going to pick that kid on your team because you haven't seen him ball, right? Unless he's like 6'9", and, you know, wearing the right kind of kicks, right? But for the most part, you want those whom you've seen in action. They've been battle-tested. So if I'm going to pick a warrior squad from the Bible, I want King David on my side. I've seen what he's done in the Bible. I want Samson. He wasn't very holy and righteous in his life, but Duke could fight, right? You start thinking about battle-tested warriors in Scripture. But then you think about battle-tested spiritual warriors, the kinds like Elijah who asked God for, to not let it rain for three and a half years. God obliged. People like Paul, who says, I count every gain I had as loss because Jesus is worth more. That's battle-tested. Or King David, when he stared down, before he was king, he's staring down Goliath, saying, you come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. That's battle-tested faith. Or like Miriam, after the Red Sea was parted and the, 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 the Egyptian soldiers were taken over by the waters and drowned. It says this, then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. Yes, that's biblical, family. And all the women went out and after with her tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them this song, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. That's battle tested singing there. See, there are the scriptures filled with men and women who have been approved by God because of their faith. And Paul saying, do your best to present yourself to God as one who is battle-tested, approved. But more particularly, approved in what sense? Yes, in your faith. Yes, in a variety of ways. But present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. To make sure you are not ashamed. Now, ashamed of what? Is it ashamed of your faith? What's true? The more you know the Bible, the more emboldened you'll be in your faith. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. 
Is it ashamed of God? Well, it's true that if you study the Bible, you know more of God, but that's, that's not what he's talking about here. Be a worker who's not ashamed. Now, I, would believe, I believe what he's talking about is that you would not be ashamed of yourself before God. See, a lot of us don't realize there's a category for that, even in Jesus' return. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, it says this, And now little children abide in him, abide in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So I believe what the Bible is telling us here is that when we are not living battle-tested, approved lives, we can actually be ashamed before God knowing we did not do our best. Man, I don't want that to be said of me. Surely I don't want that to be said of you, church. Do your best to present yourself before God as a worker who is battle-tested, not ashamed, and lastly, rightly handling the word of truth. The word rightly handling is actually one, it's a compound word, and I love what it means. It means to cut straight, to cut something straight. It's like taking an exacto knife to a perforated sheet of paper, and you take that knife and you cut it down and make a straight line. It is precise. It doesn't swerve. It doesn't get crooked. It is a straight cut. And what God wants you and I to be are men and women who take a straight cut to the scriptures, the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, which is here in the Bible, that we would get in here and we would interpret this Bible accurately, rightly dividing it, rightly handling it, cutting it straight. This word is also used for those who are paving ways. For instance, if they wanted to create a pathway from one city to another and there is a forest uh, separating the cities, they would cut straight path, cut a straight path through the woods because they want people who are starting at one place to end up in their desired destination. See, when you cut it straight, you can lead people to the right destination, which is Jesus himself. If you don't cut it straight, you're going to swerve and lead people astray into ruin, a catastrophe. And so God has entrusted to us the opportunity to cut it straight, family, to cut it straight. And that's what we need to do with God's word. Make that straight path. I know a lot of times people say, man, I, don't, I read the Bible. I don't know how to get anything out of it. I, I get intimidated by it. And so what I want you to do is to plead with God for insight when you open the Bible, to read the Bible, and to reread the Bible. To plead, read, and reread. And trust that the Spirit of God in you will be at work. Because in the Bible is this message that brings salvation to our souls and brings nourishment for us. In this scripture, we find that God is holy. In this scripture, we find that you and I are not holy. In this scripture, we find that God is just and ought to judge uh, those who are unholy. In this scripture, we find that God sends people to warn his people against sinful living. In the scripture, we find Jesus coming, taking on the, 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 the human nature. 
In the scripture, we find Jesus going to a cross on your behalf for your sin. In the scripture, we find Jesus who went to the grave on your behalf and conquered sin and death. This is what we find when we cut it straight, family. When we cut it straight, we see the story of Noah, who through an ark, God saved his family from the sinful world. We cut it straight. We see that it points to a greater one who through his cross would save people from the sinful world. When we cut it straight, we see Abraham who takes his son on Mount Moriah, ready to sacrifice his son, his one and only son. And we see that it points to another who put his son on Calvary and did sacrifice his son, his one and only son for our sins. When we cut it straight, we, we see this sacrificial system in the Old Testament where a perfect lamb had to be cut every year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest for the sins of the people. And we see that they had to do that year in and year out. But we also see that it points to another one who is the great high priest, who is not just the priest, but he's also the sacrifice, who is the perfect lamb, Jesus, who did not go once every year, but once for all your sins. That's what we see when we cut it straight, fam. And when we pave that pathway for people, we can point them to Jesus who saved his people from their sin. That's different than catastrophe. That's different than ungodliness. That's different than upsetting the faith of some. That's cutting it straight, fam. So when we get in God's word, I want to give you three things you do when you get in the Bible, okay? You can write these down, fam. We talk about this when we do our DNA studies. We want us to be men and women who rightly handle this word. We say do observation, interpretation, and application when you get in the Bible. Three things. Observation, ask the question, what do I see? If you've been in my real community group, you know I've told you, you got to interrogate the text. Get in the Bible and say, who is speaking? Who, what, where, why, when, how? Ask the questions. Observation asks, what do I see? And then you go to interpretation. What does it mean? So you take those questions and you begin to answer them from the text. And if you can't find the answer, you go to other Bible verses because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. And when you can't find the answer, you consult trusted voices. Interpretation asks, what does it mean? And then application asks, what do I do? Is there a promise to claim here? Is there a command to obey here? Is there a prayer to pray here? Basically, you're saying, God, what do you want me to take away from this? How do you want me to respond? Those are three simple steps to cutting it straight. Observation, what do I see? Interpretation, what does it mean? And application, what do I do? Family, this Bible is God preaching. And God still speaks through what he has spoken. It's for you and I, then, to listen. The last verse of this passage says, God's firm foundation stands. So whether we're faithful or not, God stands firm. And he knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That means let's not swerve, but let's walk this straight path. A battle-tested Christian is a Christian who knows how to cut it straight, fam. That's what I want us to hear. Let's be be battle-tested. Let's cut it straight. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I'm thankful, God, that you have not left us without a guide. First and foremost, your Holy Spirit, who lives inside of every child of God, who has put their faith in Jesus for their forgiveness of sins. And then through your spirit, you speak through this word, the Bible. And so, God, we lack nothing when it comes to how to live. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. But I pray, God, that all of us here will be spurred on to be anchored men and women, to be biblically rooted, to be battle-tested, unashamed before you because we've done our best to know your word. Help us, God, when we fall short. God, help us when we go after lesser pleasures. Help us see that you are more valuable than anything. God, I pray for our church right now that you would put all of us in a DNA group, that we would all be in Second Timothy and keep grinding it out, keep studying this word, keep mining the treasures that are here for us. And Lord God, I pray that we would just find and experience the joy of knowing you more deeply. I praise you, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.